Hello and welcome to season two of Refocus, where we talk to artists and music industry professionals about building sustainable careers as creative workers with a focus on folk. I'm your host, Rosalind Dennett. Our guest today is Barbara Lika. She's a Juno-nominated singer-songwriter, producer, and a seasoned act on the North American club and festival circuits. She has performed everywhere, from New York City's legendary Birdland to Toronto's Kerner Hall, headlining festivals around the world, including Festival International de Jazz de Montreal, Tokyo International Jazz Festival, Port-au-Prince International Jazz Festival, and is open for giants like Christian McBride, Pat Metheny, and Terrence Blanchard. Her 2018 album, You're Fine, marked the first introduction of folk and Americana elements to her repertoire and amassed over 6 million streams to date on Spotify. More recently, her first self-produced EP, Imposter Syndrome, garnered her two 2024 Canadian Folk Music Award nominations in the category of Single of the Year and Solo Artist of the Year. At the 2023 Folk Music Ontario Conference, the album single The Ghost of Me took home the 2023 Ontario Folk Music Award CMRRA Song of the Year Prize. Here's our conversation with Barbara Lika. Hi, Barbara. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So last time I saw you, you were uh, holding a, a brand new award you had just received for the CMRA Song of the Year at the Ontario Folk Music Awards for your song, Ghost of Me. And the opening to your acceptance speech uh, was that you were a little surprised about that. Why, why were you surprised? I think that no part of me, like no cell in my body thought there was any chance that I would win a trophy of any kind. I mean, I I literally have a song that I wrote called Trophy that I wrote after making a joke that I never win anything. And then this ended up happening. So I I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's my Eastern European-ness or if it's the fact that, you know, I've been doing jazz for so long. I mean, I feel like I've been doing folk for a long time now too, but it's sort of hard to get into the club. And I feel like, you know, Joel Elliott's always telling people you're folk enough, but I don't think I really internalized that. So, so I didn't think I was folk enough and it was cool when I won because now I'm officially folk enough, right? If you win a folk award, you're folk enough. Can you tell us a little bit about that song and, and what it meant to you? Oh man, I was like in the absolute pits of my my depression. I just I was just ready to throw in the towel. I said, you know, that's it. And I have so many friends in the music industry that I was like, you know, I wish you all the best, but I'm out. <laughs> you know, I'll just be cheering you on from the sidelines. So I feel like I couldn't really process the feeling until it existed as a song. And my friend Danielle Knibby, who's won, I think she won the Colleen Peterson Award before. She's one of my closest friends, and she came over and helped me kind of get this out of my system when we wrote this song together. And, and yeah, it's weird because now it's been a while and I haven't quit yet. <laughs> but uh, I feel like you almost have to, you have to write the song so that you can really finish figuring out what you're feeling. Did you feel then once the song had been created, like you're like, I did it. I figured it out. I put it into the song and now I'm, I'm able to move through that, that feeling? Well, I mean, after you write the song, then all of a sudden you have this renewed feeling of wanting to perform that song and wanting to see if anybody else 
feels that way too. And I think before that, I sort of focused on a lot more joyful topics and lovey-dovey things and lighter things. And so I think that being on the cusp of wanting to quit even gave me the courage to say, well, what's the worst that happens? Nobody likes it and I quit. So I just put it out and had that renewed motivation to just get some stuff out and get some real feelings out and deal with wanting to quit and being sad and being upset and being insecure by putting out music that is about that. And then what's the reaction like then been from from audiences and, and fans uh, when they hear the song? People really, like when we when we do it after, you know, at concerts, people get really quiet or sometimes they'll say things like, wow, which is really strange still because no matter how many times we perform it, I always feel nervous to perform it. Like, oh, this will be a real bummer. And so it's always kind of amazing how people relate to it, you know, people in all fields, because anybody sort of doing the day-to-day hustle, no matter what it is, whether it's a job or in family, I I feel like it's just a good song for tired people who are at their wit's (laughs) end, you know? Do you draw energy from that then? You know, I know you said like, oh, this will be a bummer, but you've made it to that other side in the sense that you're you're performing it now and you're you're on the stages, you're winning awards, you're doing tours. You obviously chose to hop back into it. Does that song feel kind of empowering? Yeah, I mean, it's just like it's it's kind of been exciting to see that you can change gears and still connect with people. You know, I always used to joke that like Barbara, I'm not Barbara Leek. Everybody calls me Barbie in <laughs> real life, like everybody. <laughs> so I'm always like Barbara Leek is kind of like an exaggerated version of me on my best day, Mm-mm. you know, and it's been exciting to sort of take to this place where like I actually am this person and I really am particularly real on stage and I can really be me and I can really work through my issues and I can really talk about things and I don't have to sort of summon up a smile or summon up whatever I remember some of the guys in my band telling me that who'd they go see? Was it Rose Cousins? Mm-hmm. And then she had done a performance where she said, "Look, today's a, like a bad day for me. It's going to be a depressing set." And she didn't feel compelled to do that thing I've done for years, where it's like, "Well, the set has to be constructed in such a way." You know, maybe you start high energy and then you go here, and it, you know, she just did the set she felt. And I love that. You know, I love just do the set you feel. Every show of mine, every set list is different. Even when we were Folk Music Ontario, the thing you're supposed to do at Folk Music Ontario is you're supposed to feature your best stuff that you can do confidently that fits in that time frame. And on one of my showcases, I just did a brand new song that we've never done as a band together. Because, you know, if you're not going to make yourself feel something and be excited Mm -hmm. and you're not going to enjoy anything, then you're just giving everything away. So, yeah, it was kind of, I don't even know how it went. I don't care. It was a good time. That takes some courage and sometimes that really pays off, right? Because if you're being vulnerable with the audience by like maybe doing something a little bit out of your comfort zone, the audience wants to take that risk with you, right? Yeah. And also like you could do everything perfectly every time and do all the things you think you're supposed to do and be frustrated that it doesn't work out. At least if you're having a good time and doing what you want, you know, it's a win-win no matter what. And I had this experience actually back in April talking about nightmare situation, (laughs) like the award where I didn't have the speech prepared, but this was worse where uh, I was in North Carolina and we had just done the the sound check and then I totally lost my voice. I knew it was kind of on the edge, but I think all that was left were maybe three notes. And we still had to do two shows, two sets, and 
complete, like complete total laryngitis, just gone. So I ended up having to do two shows where I improvised new melodies to every song on the spot, (laughs) two, three notes, like using just a few notes. And it was the most horrifying, like musical situation of my life. Wow. And I sort of just, I think something twisted in my brain that day too, where it was just like, we've done the worst case scenario. We've seen what happens and it was fine. Mm -hmm. Everything is always fine. Just have a good time, have fun. Like we're so ready, I think, in music to sacrifice our experience in pursuit of a positive experience for others. That's so interesting. When I look back to times that I've like pushed myself to perform sick, and I'm not saying this in a way to like advocate for people doing that, like take care of yourself, do what you need to do. But I relate to that experience in that sometimes I think of times where I've performed like when I don't feel my best, but that's like my new challenge, (laughs) you know, is like you adapt and figure out a way to make it possible. And sometimes it's like that extra challenge. I would never advocate for either, but I was there. Like I bought the flights for a five piece band. I paid for the visa. I really needed to get paid. You know, this wasn't like a, this was like a financial situation where it had to happen. And then the lights went down. It's like, okay, this is happening. It didn't even feel real. It was surreal. (laughs) But props to your, also your uh, improvisational ability to make everything into like the one note samba, you know? That's what (laughs) it was. It was kind of like the three note samba, but uh, you know, we changed the, everything changed. Like I was counting in every tune, changing keys of everything on the spot. And the band is just kind of, watching intently I feel like we never had to listen to each other that much because we're a band that's rehearsed and played together for what 10 years wow and all of a sudden it's like okay what's happening nothing's gonna be clean tonight has it been the the same group pretty much for 10 years uh yeah I mean the bassist has switched out part way through but even then like the bassist who, who plays with us now for the past six years, he's my like old university bass friend playing buddy. That's great. How do you kind of maintain that relationship then with your bandmates? Is that like a conscious relationship that you, that you kind of tend to or? Yeah. I mean, I think that the secret to these things for me is that no matter how close we become as friends, you know, like we, message each other almost every day. And, you know, we have a great time getting along. We hang out after gigs. And I think no matter what happens as a band leader, I have to never take advantage of them. I think it's very easy to say, well, we're friends. Can you do this favor? No matter what it is, I respect them as professional working musicians. And they know that they're going to get, you know, a union fee, if somebody has to struggle and it's it's my gig and I'm doing these things, if somebody has to lose money, it's going to be me. I'm not going to divide it amongst them. And I, I always pay them for everything. And I think if you keep that professionalism where it's like no matter how much we become friends, that's not going to cost you. I'm not going to blur the lines. I think that's kept us getting along all these years because they know now after – 10 years, I'm always going to respect them professionally. I feel like that's a part of how I first came to know you too, was was, was through your work, or maybe it wasn't even work, just like advocacy that you've done about like musicians' rights and union-related kind of work stuff. Is that something you've always been passionate about? Yeah. I mean, I, I really, I really believe in the value of music and the value that musicians bring. And I think 
you know, the most powerful thing that the industry can do to musicians is convince them that they have no value. And people always say that, you know, there's no money in music. There is money in music, but there's a lot of gatekeepers and people interrupting the downward flow Mm. of that money. And musicians are always quick to play for free or do favors. And I kind of want to be you know, I want, I want to be an example of the world I believe in. Like, it would be really great if I could get my guys to just come and do a thing for free for me. That'd be mm-hmm. really great for me. And a lot of the time I can't afford it. But it doesn't matter because if I want a service, I have to pay for it. And I just try to the best of my ability to be fair and also to advocate for fair circumstances. Like in my orchestra, I hired somebody so that if somebody had an issue, they could go to somebody else and anonymously put in uh, grievances or or whatever, that somebody could fight me. I remember we were in the middle of a a sound check right outside Ottawa, actually. And the steward, he started arguing with me that my sound check was going too long uh, and that it was going to run into their dinner time, you know? And it was funny because like, I loved it. It was such a, I like, I want to say delicious moment <laughs> because on one hand, like me, me, the me was like, no, I really want to sound check this. I really want to get it right. But then I was so happy that somebody was there saying, you can't do that. These guys need to have their dinner. You know, and I think that's that's really important to have. Like, it's really important to advocate for them to have that calm time, them to have their meal, them to have, you know, it's it's really important to be treated fairly. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, you don't want them going into the gig hangry. That's, no. That's not good for anyone. And I remember, like, the steward was apologizing to me after. It's like, sorry, Barbie, that, like, I had to fight back there. I'm like, no, man, like, that's exactly, it's exactly what you're there for. Like, that's a battle I was supposed to lose. It's great. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I wish that that existed in every band. Because then also you don't have that resentment, right? Like, there isn't that resentment towards the individual musician who's speaking up for themselves. Like, oh, you're not a team player because you're trying to duck out early to fill your needs, you know? Exactly. Like your needs matter. And I think mm-hmm. as musicians, we're so quick to say like, well, I'll just take one for the team or I'll be a team player, this or that. But it's still a workplace and you still have needs and you're still human and you're still important and you still offer a service uh, as a sideman, you know, your band leader owes you that as a leader, the presenter owes you that. It's crazy how much I run into even presenters that are fighting you over whether or not they give you dinner in a room. Like <laughs> if my friend came over from Vancouver, I don't even know where I put them. I give them my room <laughs> and offer them dinner. Like it's just basic hospitality and and manners. Um, and I really, I really believe that musicians need to stand together and demand that they deserve things. Like we we deserve things. I'm not saying you have to join the union, but I believe in a unified mentality, you know. And it's like when we're sticking up for each other too and when there's that kind of solidarity, stuff can happen. You know, change can actually be made, I think. I mean, look at the Hollywood writer strike. I would love yeah. it. <laughs> I love if musicians did that, but but they're scared. People are scared. Nobody wants to be sort of the poster child of standing up and complaining and being difficult. And yeah. maybe as the ghost of me, Uh, you know, I just don't, I'm just not scared. And I just, I just don't care. Like, what is it we're all protecting? What are we fighting for? And and I feel for the presenters too, because I think there's less money than there's ever been in the arts. And you see festivals falling like flies and, you know, they don't necessarily have 
the money to pay enough or to do enough. But I also think on the other side of artists, we shouldn't be accepting low fees. We shouldn't be accepting fees where we lose money, where it pays less than the flight. We're depending on granting systems, which slowly, slowly have less money too. I think the factor success rate last uh, session was 8% or something. I wasn't part of it, but I saw it go out. And, and I know Canadian Heritage uh, was speaking a little bit about that at Folk Music Ontario, about how mm. artists are going to be needing to find other methods of funding. And I do believe that maybe some of the events should shrink in scope mm-hmm. and focus on whatever you do present is is paid and accommodated fairly. That's such an interesting point of conversation because it is scary when you see like the overall funding level, like just kind of across the board drop. And then it, it, it can kind of send people in this scarcity kind of mentality. I, I think that's there anyways, kind of that competitiveness between yeah. organizations, industry, companies, musicians, you know, that, that kind of exists throughout each of those levels. But there, there has to be some sort of, there's like a, a breaking point or some sort of, like something has to change. And when we get to a, a little point where where the industry is getting really stressed, you know, usually there's something like bizarrely catastrophic that, you know, it's a pandemic. Now we have to figure something new out. There's streaming. We have to figure something new out, you know, and if live music is getting, it's already been kind of stressed to the max with the pandemic. And, and now we're, we're finding that it's, you know, it's still feeling that stress. So there's like, gotta be like, I don't know. Can you fix the music industry, Barbara? (laughs) What do you, what do you suggest? (laughs) Do you have thoughts on like any ways that we can make things more sustainable? Oh man. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard, right? It's little things here and there. I mean, I'm always saying that on the granting level, I think that public funding to presenters should come with the caveat that there are minimums on what the actual hired artists are spent. And, you know, I've, been on panels where I've seen that there is some loose inquiry on like, how are you basing your funding, your pay structures? Mm -hmm. But I don't know how seriously that quick question is taken or how much it's lined up with the budgets to see what is the actual, what are the actual numbers here? And especially like you have a lot of the granting programs saying, well, you have to prioritize marginalized artists, which is great. But how is that money lining up with those artists? Like, are you just hiring certain artists so that you could put them in the byline or are you actually both paying those artists and creating a meaningful platform Mm -hmm. yeah that's uh there was an artist who i absolutely love but i don't want to like say who it is because i don't know if they're like still planning to do this or not but they wanted to do a study of basically they were headlining festivals playing on the main stage of festivals as a as a solo female artist and, and you know they started asking male counterparts who were doing the same act kind of thing so what do you what are you getting paid for this gig and found out that you know many many times male counterparts who were even like not playing as prestigious of a slot on the main stage were getting paid way more so she wanted to start i think she called it i'll show you mine if you show me yours which is cheeky, <laughs> but just like a way either to get that information through the festivals or through the musicians to make sure that people were being paid fairly, that there wasn't like a huge wage gap, a gender gap there. I mean, that's one thing that I actually appreciate too about Folk Music Ontario is that I feel like there was a lot of effort. First of all, anything I was asked to do in Folk Music Ontario as part of the Developing Artists Program was paid. 
And there's also, I felt, there's also a lot of effort, I think, to bring value to artists. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is very artist-centric. The panels that were selected, the things, you know, artists were were paying registration fees, but I feel like there was a value offered. Whereas a lot of showcase conferences are primarily geared towards presenters and people on the industry side. And if anything, artist showcases are the draw, but those artists are still asked to pay registration fees. I just feel like we should be demanding a little bit more. There should be a minimum. And I think that if events, whether it's festivals or conferences, can't offer that, they should shrink. You know, everybody Mm. wants to have like a big, huge event. We want to go over three days or go over a weekend, maybe make it one day, but pay properly. Maybe it's smaller, but it's really, (laughs) there's no dark side to it. Yeah. I mean, that, that would be my solution and my, and the way that I think about it. That's like the, the thing that makes the most sense to me is like, not that we should have less festivals or less labels or less conferences, but more and smaller, you know, like let them be like a reasonable, sustainable size. So you don't feel like you have to pay a headliner a hundred thousand dollars to come play your festival. Otherwise we won't get 70,000 people over the weekend. Like what if your goal is instead like 20,000 people and you pay everybody like a reasonable fair wage without, you know, having to rely on that giant draw that takes up the majority of the artistic budget, you know? And also building, you know, building real platforms for people in the sense that if you are paying that $100,000 headliner, have them actually collaborate with local artists or emerging artists, like have them create something that's unique to your festival and that ends up building real value for those other artists. Yeah, that's an amazing idea. Like something a little bit more, which I think that some folk festivals do to a degree where they have like writers in the round or something. Um, well, even they had those, like the, the idea of the festival workshop is, in my mind, one of the most effective and, oh gosh, I mean, I, I, can't, I can go on about the Canadian festival like workshop stages and stuff. I think it's so brilliant because, yeah, you get to say like, I played on the same stage as Valerie June and Dawes and like the Warren Treaty, I got to jam with them. Like just like ridiculous opportunities for artists to get to play with some of their heroes and like get the mm-hmm. opportunity to, and then you also, once you start playing with them, now you have had a conversation. So like now on stage, even if that's the first time I've ever met, you know, after the performance, I'm like chatting with Valerie and I'm like, that was so fun. That was so great. Like, yeah, next time you come through Winnipeg, let's, let's hang. And you know, like yeah. there's now I've built a relationship with, with somebody that is like really influential and, and that I respect. And it's, it's very cool. You know, it's a lot of value. And like commissions, like you could have artists, big artists come in and do commissions where they collaborate artistically with other artists. And, mm-hmm. but I mean, aside from all of that, that like all those ideas are sort of ideas I've had for a long time within the scope of the traditional artist hustle, mm-hmm. which is, you know, go to conferences, showcase, try to get tours, apply for the grants, go on the tours. And I've always, you know, asked for mentorship. I'm always big on asking, like, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? How can we make this lucrative? How can we? And I feel like the most interesting advice I got very recently was from a friend who works in the commercial field, who's sort of looking at, you know, looking at a lot of what I do from a strictly like kind of business standpoint and looking through at it said like, well, none of this makes sense. And he said, you know, if you do the same thing, and I don't think he meant for this line to be as impactful as it, as it was, but it's been breaking my brain. Like, 
if you do the same thing as everybody else, how do you expect to stand out? You know, and that's what we're doing. Like we all have this expectation that we'll always be visible and we always need to tour so that we'll be visible and we need to go to the conferences and we need to post all the time. We need to do these things. And then I'm looking at somebody like say, Saya Gray, who barely ever posts anything except for maybe the odd, uh, she's really into pole dancing. Like very, very little posting, can't really tell where she's touring or what's happening, but she's really focusing on just making great content musical content or video content. Like what if we, and I'm just hypothesizing here because I think this is the way I want to go. What if we take a step back, stop being in the rat race or the hustle and this high pressure thing that we feel like we need to do, again, sacrificing the self for what we believe the audience needs or however we feel we need to stay relevant and just focus on making stuff like good stuff that speaks to you, that you like making and just keep making stuff. And I see like in the comedy world, there's Netflix specials from comedians who haven't really toured at all, but have entirely built just online comedy specials that have moved directly from that to selling out clubs in New York. You know, if you just take a step back and Get away from that pressure to do what you think you have to do and what you're supposed to do and just make good content. I mean, think about it. Like a factor grant is what? $10,000 for just the recording component. And in order to get that $10,000, you need to spend $13,000. So it's $3,000 out of pocket plus all the time and time is money because our time has value. All the time you spent building that grant, all the time you're going to spend doing the final reports and the two-step audits and the essays you're going to write for every component to get every piece of support material, which will also be 75% funded. Forget all that time. Take those thousands of dollars and make some music. I 100% agree with what you said. And I, I just think it can be personalized for every single person in a completely different way. You know, it's like about auditing what makes you happy and sparks creativity and like where you sit in the artistic process because somebody might also have the exact opposite. Speaking for myself here, I have like a, you know, when I think about as with my artist hat on, I, I love playing. I love playing live. I love playing festivals. That's like, that's what gets me going. You know, some people are writing songs and you're like, are you really like into writing songs? <laughs> Is that, yeah. Or do you just feel like you need to write songs? Because I like, I've, I felt like that where there's like a pressure for me that that doesn't come naturally to like write songs and then record my own songs. But that means that like, maybe I don't have to do that. Maybe that side of it isn't the part that brings me joy and it's the live performance and that's where I can focus. Exactly. And there's such a stigma around finding like conventional forms of funding, like a part-time or full-time job. You know, that job you're getting probably ends up being less time out of your day than the, what I know for me for years has been like, what, 7 a.m. to 2 a.m.? you know, and weekends don't exist. And just that constant hustle. And, you know, if you take a day off, you feel like you're being lazy that day. It's a miserable feeling. Like what if we just found ways to fund specifically the one thing or the two things that bring us joy? Hmm. Like joy is important. And if you retain joy, you're going to keep making stuff that you like that is sustainable. I think 
joy is what makes things sustainable. Like it's, it's why no matter how, you know, nuts. So my two-year-old is running around the place and doing things that normally I would have been sweating buckets. feels like the easiest thing in the world because I love him and I love his face. And so it's sustainable because there's joy, hmm. you know? And I think we just, I think we just lose that. And I think if we prioritize that and we make stuff we're proud of, maybe it's a bit of a domino effect. Mm-hmm. Maybe value comes from there. I don't know. I just feel like the industry and like all the sort of rhetoric we hear all the time, like, oh, you know, if you're a musician, you got to wear every hat. You got to do mm-hmm. this and that. And we just hear these things and we accept these things. And there's a bit of a cult around it. Like, why does making music or art have to be anything but what you say it is? Mm-hmm. And so, like, I personally, I love writing and I love recording and that's my happy place. And so I just kind of want to do that. And I want to figure out ways to make that lucrative or else find other things that help fund that instead of sitting and writing essays and doing the thing and going through the cycle. It's exhausting. And I'm, I'm ready to just break out of it. Do you think that there's a way that, like, collectively – we can do something like, is it up to the individual or is it up to the collective to make a difference? I mean, I think unfortunately there's so many things I love to change about the industry, but I do think that there's so much interference in that flow. There's so many gatekeepers that it is a little bit overbroken and we don't necessarily have even the legal power. I love this utopian world where we all stand together and do things. And I think that it's still important to fight every small battle. Like I know I have sometimes to my own detriment, but I think ultimately we all have to look within ourselves to say, you know, what do I have to do to feel like I have value? You know, maybe you have to build that value system for yourself first and then go about enforcing it. I don't know. It feels overwhelming to tackle the industry as a whole. Like you were talking about transparency before. I think transparency should be an absolute given. I think everybody should stop posturing. I feel like we. I tell anybody who asks me what my fees are. And I ask everybody their fees, even if it makes them uncomfortable. I remember going to a showcase conference one time and there was a sort of panel of agents that I walked in on and I had said something about that like wouldn't it be great uh, even for you guys if we just posted fees across the board so that everybody could call the MFN card you know and I remember one agent said you know that sounds all did the jazz hands so it was like that sounds all hunky-dory but my clients you know don't want people to know if they play somewhere for free mm-hmm. and at that point you know like the conversation is over for me because it's like why are you getting your artist an unpaid gig? <laughs> you know, and why are we encouraging this system? And why why shouldn't that be told? How do you convince all these artists to stand together and stop doing these things? Like, unfortunately, this system is basically just moving towards a place where the only people who can afford to do it are either independently wealthy or, you know, truly doing it on the side. Like mm-hmm. the age of, you know, the full-time middle-class <laughs> musician is dying. And that top tier of musician is part of an industry that's probably taking the majority of the money. I've been going into a lot of the schools and trying to do little workshops on DIY business and stuff and sort of trying to get at the younger generation of people to sort of, you know, from the beginning as much as I can say, guys, get reasonable fees, value yourself, do this. But I think that more than anything is we all just need to 
decide that we actually have value. If we didn't, why would anybody even want us there? Oh, exactly. Like somebody else is profiting off of that value. It's not that you don't have value. It's just that somebody else is profiting off of your value. Oh yeah. I would love to have like a, like a strike where all music is just shut down for even one day, like no cabs, no gyms, no anywhere. Just like see people exist with that silence Mm -hmm. and then tell us that we don't offer a real service. I mean, there's actually scientific studies saying that people work out better with music. It's, it's very strange that we've all been convinced we're not worth anything, which is a really great way to get us for cheap. It's, it's ingenious. Like part of me really respects, like tip of the hat to you. I really respect that. That's a real long game that was played and it's really, it's really effective. And you know, like my friend Joel always likes to say, like, no matter how crappy it gets, unfortunately, it's still the best job on the planet. You know, like we love it so much and we've let that turn it into a ridiculous job. I mean, can you imagine any other job where somebody's like, all right, okay, we're going to hire you. You can play my event, but instead of paying you, we're going to give you this letter that says we intend to have you. And you know what? You could take that letter and you can write some essays to the government and they'll possibly maybe pay you. But we need to know by this day, because we're going to make our programs. So we really need to know by this day. And you might not get the money, but look, you're going to have a great time. You love this, right? (laughs) You love this. Like, can you imagine any other job where they paid you in a letter for money, maybe if you write an essay? It's so unethical. And yet it's so like the number of excited musicians who are like, Barb, I got eight letters. <laughs> it's like some kind of alternate universe where, I don't know, I just feel like I'm waking up from this stuff. and like, what are we doing? I knew it was bad, but then even like the things I didn't want to admit that I've been participating in for so long, you know, like, why am I asking for letters? <laughs> How about just like a fee that would pay enough? Any other job, even just that, where it's like, okay, hey, Roz, I'm going to pay you to come over to Vancouver Island. <laughs> and, you know, everybody uses the plumber or whatever. Fix fix my fix my HVAC system. <laughs> and I'm going to pay you enough to fix the HVAC system. But you got to cover the flight and the hotel room. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> it's a bum deal. And I, and I think that there's a difference between the paying huge fees and like a living wage. You know, I think that there is like a living wage that is very reasonable if you're a presenter or, you know, whatever thing is. If it's like, if there's a general, oh man, I'm getting real commie now. But, you know, if there's like a (laughs) baseline, I mean, I could get even more that like, you know, what if the government had like a minimum wage for artists? Like that's where I think like the union is useful. Like even if you don't join, there are guides to what, you know, look at your local and look at the, even if you're not in it, just email them, say, Hey, can I have your, and if you look in your local, like that's what they think you should get paid for however many hours. That's what they think the minimum, the minimum, the minimum, very minimum. And on top of that, like you need to be considering, yes, your travel. If your agent's going to take anything, you need to consider hospitality costs. If you're a leader, you're supposed to be getting double. If you're playing any doubles and, you know, dragging some more instruments with you, that's supposed to be, you know, 25, 10 cartage, right? There are guidelines to what your basic hospitality should be, how much each meal should cost if they're not providing it. Like there, you add all that stuff up. So and, mm. and that's the thing, like, you know, 
a lot of presenters will say, you know, we're paying people union. Well, like, are you, are you paying the, the leader double? Like are you, health and welfare, are you paying yeah. health and welfare? Are you mm-hmm. playing travel stipends based on how far it is? Because there are guides to that. Like if something is outside of your region, you're supposed to be getting a travel stipend. I think that health and welfare, sometimes like it gets ignored, especially in Canada because we're like, well, we have healthcare. It's like, no, but it's health and welfare. Like there's yeah. like, you know, we still have to go to the dentist and, you know. So true. And I'm not even like, I'm, you know, I'm trying to pay fairly and I'm not giving my band enough to cover all those amounts. I'm doing my best, but it is just crazy how, you know, over the years, the fee offers get, get lower mm-hmm. and the grant asks have to be higher. And it's like, why, why am I doing this? And then somebody's doing that and getting these offers or getting these letters. And you have other artists looking at them through Instagram being like, oh, it's amazing. You're touring. You're doing all this stuff. I'm sorry, but like I've gone and messaged a bunch of musicians who I consider much more successful than me. And all of them will say, oh yeah, when I tour, I lose money. Mm-hmm. It boils down to sustainability, right? Because the system must be broken. If you have a public that is willing to pay a ticket price or they're willing to like invest in music and that money isn't going to either the, cause I, I know that festivals and presenters are losing money too. So if like somehow presenters, they, they don't have enough money and the musicians don't have enough money, but we know people are willing to spend money. Then like, where is it going? Like what is it? It goes to the, it goes to the middleman. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. most, most major labels, their boilerplate contract will be like 75% of your master, you know, like every manager takes 15 to 20%. Every agent takes 15 to 20%. And a lot of them are very helpful. I I don't want to crap on, on, you know, the entire thing, but there's something to be said for DIY and retaining your rights and retaining everything. If you can, and not necessarily looking at getting a label or getting a manager as a sign of success. And then they're like, well, you know, I can't manage all this workload and I can't. And then there's that other line, like, well, when you get enough of a workload, that's when they'll come and help. You mean like that's when they'll come and exploit you? I feel like if we can scale our own businesses down to what brings us the most joy and what's sustainable, put a value on that and hold on to it. I mean, there's so many arguments on this. Like, would you rather have a hundred percent of nothing? <laughs> but, but honestly, I can even say that without feeling like somebody's dad. <laughs> like it's a rough puzzle. And if somebody really wanted to create a coalition and do something and change something like I'd be first there. But I do wonder if it starts at the level of public funding, if it even exists in the way that we regulate the funding that's given to festivals and, and presenters. And again, saying this with, with the full understanding that the festivals are struggling so much too. And I see that, but there has to be some kind of conversation about sustainability on both sides. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe at some point I, I thought that maybe unionizing the corporate side of the business, like the wedding industry and all these things do have very healthy fees. You get a lot more freelance musicians thinking that way. I have many many thoughts and feelings, but since I feel somehow powerless to change the industry at large, all I can do is prioritize my own experience and 
my own joy. And again, I, I think having a kid has really helped that because I know what joy looks and feels like for me. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite moments was when Cody Hutchinson, he's the Jazz YYC Festival AD, he was out in Europe at this conference there. And he was talking about how he had just debuted this Canadian orchestra project. And it was a dream of his. Like he'd always dreamed of having this orchestral project and, and you know, it was so much work and he'd realized it. And then he goes home and there's this little girl like jumping on him saying, can I show you the dance that I did that I learned? <laughs> and he's like looking at his daughter dancing and he's like, like, oh, oh crap. Like, is this, is this better? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And sometimes like we need that perspective to say like, you know, joy does exist and it's mm-hmm. important. And if you've been chasing it in music and not finding it, you know, <laughs> then you might be doing yourself a disservice. And also you might be defining yourself too much on the perspectives of this broken industry. Yeah. I think on one of the first episodes we did of this show, I talked about like maybe just like the other side of that where, you know, I was going to a gig or coming home from a gig and then like immediately got thrown up on. <laughs> I was like <laughs> feeling like on top of the world and was like, yeah, I just did this big thing. And like, I'm so, you know, and then, yeah, I mean, just like got uh, a whole lot of barf thrown onto me uh, for my child. <laughs> So maybe that's like, maybe that's a great analogy because it's like, is this thing that gives me the most joy also shits on me all the time. (laughs) And maybe that's what the music industry is like. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Oh gosh. I love it. It's been so cool to get to chat with each other. And I think your perspective's really, really valuable and poignant. And yeah, thank you for, for advocating for artists and what they do. And it's it's just really important work and really important words that you shared. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for for having me. I hope people feel hopeful and not not depressed (laughs) from what I've said. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have a parting word of hope for, for the folks? Yeah. I feel like, I feel like as an artist, only you can decide what happiness and sustainability within the music industry is only you can decide only you know and it's important to listen to your voice and value your voice and value your work beautiful before we go though can you tell us a little bit about some of the some of the things you have coming up i know you just released a christmas is a christmas single christmas it's christmas album. single it's christmas christmas single um, tell us about it it's called on christmas eve and it's my family we always celebrated on Christmas Eve instead of Christmas because in my need to have immediate gratification, I tried to make them open presents on midnight. The story is quite overblown. <laughs> anyway, everybody got tired of waiting till midnight. So we have this tradition of just doing Christmas on Christmas Eve and getting it over with. But uh, yeah, I sort of made this song about all the magical anticipation of, of Christmas Eve and it's out everywhere, and I'll be performing it live on December 15th at the Jazz Room, so people can hurry and get tickets to that. And then after that, we'll be on the road to Alaska throughout most of March. So if anybody listening is from there or otherwise is able to grab a sleigh and a here, <laughs> please fly on over. Tell your Alaskan friends, you know? Yeah, we'll check it out. Well, thank you so much, Barbara. This has been such a great conversation. Safe travels out there. All right. Thank you. 
That's all for this episode, friends. The Refocus podcast is brought to you by Folk Music Ontario. Find out more by heading to folkmusicontario.org slash refocus. That's R-E-F-O-L-K-U-S. The podcast is produced by Kayla Nizon and Rosalind Dennett and mixed by Jordan Moore at the Pod Cabin. The opening theme is by King Cardiac and the artwork is by Jamie Card. Please give us a download, a like, subscribe, rate, and review to let us know you're listening. Until next time, keep playing that folky music. <laughs>